The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be our strength, by your Holy Spirit lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Um, well, welcome this morning. Uh, we're going to continue on in the catechism. Uh, we've just finished the section on the sacraments. Um, anybody want to answer the question, what is a sacrament? <laughs> oh, no, I'm putting you on the spot. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, right? You just got to kind of keep, keep that going in your mind. Uh, there's both the outward sign and the inward grace. And um, we ended up by talking about marriage and the anointing of the sick, but somewhere along the line, we also spoke about the sacrament of penance or of, uh, of reconciliation. Um, and in our uh, Anglican tradition, uh, this comes about uh, basically as a pastoral practice um, undertaken by the priests of the church um, in assuaging the consciences of those that are deeply troubled by sin. Um, and, you know, in all honesty, I think that should be all of us, should, should have times in our lives where we're troubled by sin, we're troubled by the burden we bear of sin, and we can't bear it on our own. Um, we should know this as Christians, that we can't bear it on our own, Jesus has to bear it, <laughs> that's how it's got to be, uh, but we, we try nonetheless to try to bear up this weight. Um, and uh, I've I found in my own life that uh, sacramental confession is a great help in uh, not only uh, seeking out forgiveness, but seeking out pastoral help in the midst of that uh, struggle and battle against sin and temptation. And as we talk about the forgiveness of sins, it's kind of one of the things I want to commend to you. Um, many, many, many people at Christ Church make their confession. Stevie can attest that I probably am doing, uh, on a normal week, two, three, four confessions a week, and when we get into Lent, it's like seven, eight, nine, you know, lots. And then in Holy Week, it's like dozens and dozens, and all of us are doing that on a regular basis. So all the priests of Christ Church are hearing regular confessions as a part of our ministry. Um, so if you do this, you're not alone. If you enter this work, um, I, I don't know that I got to say this sufficiently, um, but hear this. People are often, they'll, they'll say, you're going to think less of me if, you, if I do this. It's like, that's not the temptation we have. The temptation we have is that we're going to think better of you than the rest, and we're going to, we're going to struggle with having to think like, oh, he's really great, you know, and, and we just kind of have to tame, tame and temper that. Um, uh, listen, every Christian has to come uh, to the uh, knowledge um, of, of their own sin and guilt before God. That's, that's how it is. We have to do this. We have to enter into this regularly. Um, but it's a great help, um, not only to have someone, a human being, look you in the eye and say, I absolve you, um, just as Jesus gave power to his apostles to, uh, to forgive sin. Um, but it's also a great comfort when a, when, when a priest will look you in the eye and say, the guilt you're feeling is, is not necessary. <laughs> um, you did nothing wrong in that situation. Um, there's nothing to be repented of, uh, and, and often this will happen because someone will say, listen, I was treated unjustly, and I'm really angry about it. And I love this because I'll often say, okay, <laughs> like, you were treated unjustly, you're angry about it. Uh, and I'll say, did, 
is, are you still angry? Well, in some ways, but it doesn't dominate my life. It's just I was really angry at the time. It's like, well, what'd you do about it? Well, I went and did this and I did that. It's like, good, your anger motivated you in a certain way. Like, and, and they'll be like, but I thought it was a sin to be angry. And I just, and we can clarify that, right? Because part of it is the, the blindness of sin doesn't allow us to see our sins rightly. Um, it obliterates our sense of, of being able to understand what, what is right and what is wrong. Um, and and this, is, this is part and parcel with, uh, with uh, this problem. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite prayers talks about uh, our, our twofold darkness as human beings, is that of sin and ignorance. Um, and so we often operate with a kind of ignorance that tells us, tells us nothing. We, we, we wander about in this kind of ignorance of not really knowing um, exactly how guilty we should be. Um, and that, that requires uh, counsel. It requires uh, uh, unfurling our, our lives before someone else, and, it, and it's a very painful thing to do, uh, but very, very, very worthwhile. I've had people through the years who've said, I've been in professional counseling for five years or ten years, and I've never had the kind of progress that I've had just making a confession on a regular basis. It's just a huge part of, of, a, of a good life. Um, so, but what's the Anglican take on this again? Must you? Absolutely not. <laughs> but we do say, this is a good thing and you should avail yourself of it. Um, so I want to make that very, very, very clear. Um, go ahead. Yeah, so by regular, I mean about as regular. So that's, that depends on the person. And usually what I say is something like this. Um, you know it's time to take out the trash when... <laughs> Yeah, when it starts to stink, right? So like, <laughs> you're like, this is a problem. This is making my life really like miserable, and I can't do this anymore. Like, that's when you take out the trash. Um, you know, in many households, you got to take out the trash daily. In some households, it's, a, it's an every three days kind of thing. Um, now, should you make a confession daily? Well, in a sense, yes, you should be like confessing sins daily. That's why we have in the daily office. Um, but I usually say something in, something on the order of you know quarterly, yearly, uh, something like that. But it depends. It's like if you struggle with a sin to the point where it's a weekly deal, then maybe weekly for a while is good until you can have some victory over it. Um, so that's, it's, it's up to you, right? And uh, very often a confessor will say, you know, you really ought to be doing this probably every month or something like that. And, and that's a good, a good bit of advice, and you should take it. Um, but really and truly, um, regular simply means as often as needed, Right? Um, and uh, and it's, it's no burden on us to do that. Um, you know, often, I know people will often feel like, oh, you're, we're just bothering you so much. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> this, is, this is, it's a great help to us. Um, and in fact, um, uh, I, think, I think speaking for most priests, we get a sense of the rejoicing that takes place in heaven over repentance uh, because God gives us that taste of it. <laughs> Um, so that we can continue on in it. Um, because if anything, and I've said this for the years, uh, that work is so dreadfully boring and dull. <laughs> I mean, to have to sit there and have someone say for maybe 20 minutes to half an hour, like stuff that's just, because listen, sin is not creative. It's totally dull and totally boring. And like, it's just not that interesting. Like, and you might, you might think, yeah, and I'm going to shock you this time. That's the sin of pride. Right? <laughs> you are not going to shock anybody. Uh, I was surprised by, you know, uh, 
by the time I'd been ordained a year, I had heard every one of the Ten Commandments, including murder, adultery, and all the rest, confessed. Um, and I, nothing would shock me anymore. I mean, it would take, it would, I don't even know what it would be. Uh, I, I often think about, like, I was, you know, a secret paramilitary officer in some secret army that, you know, I, I don't even know. It would be something crazy like that. Um, but there you have it. Um, as we talk about forgiveness of sins, it's important to keep in mind that, um, that uh, sin is identified in the Greek New Testament uh, by a really important word, which is hamartia, which essentially means missing the mark. It's an archery term. Um, and, uh, well, I, I think it's important to think about, why do you miss the mark in archery? Anybody in archery? Anyone? I took archery in college, so as a class, you know, it's really awesome. Uh, it's, it's simple, actually. It's, you're either too high, too low, too, too far to the right, too far to the left. You're pulling back too far. Um, your, your finger, your release is messed up. Um, there could be any number of variables that, um, that, uh, that, that make us miss the mark. Sometimes we miss the target altogether. Um, but, but it usually involves, and sin usually involves, these kinds of extremes, Right? Um, righteousness for the Christian is found in the, somewhere in the middle, um, somewhere at a, at, a, at a good mean. All sin, so we'll go back to question 134, um, God, God's response to human sin. All sin is opposed to the holiness of God and is therefore subject to God's condemnation, but God in his mercy offers forgiveness and salvation from sin to all people through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ. We're on question 134 through... We're really starting at 133. Um, here's the thing. Christians have always taught that there is absolutely nothing you can do about your sinful state. Nothing. Um, in fact, Christians have very doggedly taught that apart from God's grace, you can do nothing good at all. Um, any, na any natural virtue you might have still misses the mark because it's natural and not infused with divine grace. Um, and this is why uh, the Christian tradition has, says, has said things like this. There's a kind of virtue that looks like love, but so long as it's not oriented toward God, which is something only God can do, it's not really love in the virtuous Christian sense of a virtue that's given to you by grace. Um, so we doggedly teach this, that there is nothing that one can do uh, to please God apart from his own grace given to you. How does God forgive your sins? By virtue of Christ's atoning sacrifice, God sets aside my sins, accepts me, and adopts me as his child and heir in Jesus Christ. Loving me as his child, he forgives my sins whenever I turn to him in repentance and faith. Um, it is Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross uh, as the perfect Lamb of God uh, that sets aside sin. Um, God makes, through Jesus Christ, atonement for sin. What does atonement mean? There's a really cheesy way to put it. At one mint, right? It, it, what, that which is separated becomes one again. Um, and this is not to say, this is not to say uh, that what, what our sins require is some bloody show of pain and misery. 
uh, but rather something else, which has surprised me in the Christian tradition that this is very much there, but that God in Jesus Christ goes to the furthest extent possible for our salvation, taking on human flesh, um, dying this horrible, miserable death, um, not just to show His love for us, uh, but to, uh, to make real atonement. And atonement requires blood. Um, we, we often forget that uh, because we've sort of uh, fully embraced kind of cerebral religion, right? We're, we're, very, we're very clear-headed people that uh, cannot be swayed by the idea that God is pleased with the smell of incense or uh, blood sacrifices on an altar. But, but this was the ancient way. And, uh, and it's something that never goes away in the Christian imagination because we understand that, um, that uh, what we continually enter into as Christians is this, is this sacrifice of Christ. By virtue of Christ's atoning sacrifice, God sets aside my sins, accepts me, and adopts me. This language of adoption is huge in the, in the New Testament, um, primarily because uh, adoption is not so much, actually, a Jewish un- understanding and conception. The Jews are, Jewish people are very much concerned with, um, with heritage and bloodlines and the rest. Um, Adoption is actually a Roman idea, um, and it has great power in the Roman system. Uh, and if you've ever read some of these great histories of Rome, you'll, you'll read about uh, centurions, etc., that are adopted into the, uh, into the imperial household, and they have the right to become the heir to the household um, because they're adopted. Um, and in the Roman system, you become a full child. I mean, it's kind of this idea of, um, you know, uh, if, if being born by blood is a virtue, being born by someone's will is a great virtue. But what is, and I've been really dwelling on this lately, the Gospel of John in the very opening chapter says uh, that the children of God are not born by blood nor the will of man, but what? Of God. So to simply say that God does this, he brings forth spiritual children um, uh, for himself and he adopts them. Um, and it's through the virtue of the cross that this happens. He sets aside my sin, accepts me, and makes me his heir um, in Jesus Christ. So, who's the firstborn of all creation? Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that Jesus Christ is born or created? No, what does it mean? This is Colossians. Huh? Yeah, he's the heir of all creation. Um, he, he is uh, the one uh, who has a right to it. Okay? Um, and when we're incorporated into Jesus Christ, um, we, we become co-heirs or joint heirs, as Paul puts it. Um, and he forgive, loving me as his child, he forgives my sins whenever I turn to him in repentance and faith. With that wonderful uh, uh, parable of the, um, of the prodigal son, what happens to the prodigal son? He's accepted back in. And it's, and it's more than that. Yeah, with a, with a party, right? A ruckus party <laughs> that makes his older brother mad, right? Makes his older brother livid. It's that quality of partying, right? Um, it's that quality of rejoicing. Um, the, the younger son has returned in repentance, right? Note something about this story. It's not a story of a helicopter father kind of touching down in the pigsty and pulling his father up out of this. What does the father let the son do? Yeah, he, the, the son has freedom, right? He has a free will. 
He can go do all these things. Um, but as soon as he repents, as soon as he turns, as soon as he returns, um, he's, he receives back what he had forsaken, namely his place in the family. Um, so this is an incredible uh, portion of this, and, and it's something we need to be reminded of, which is that um, God doesn't, doesn't kind of demote us every time we repent. It's not like, oh, you've been doing that darn thing again. We're going to have to take you down a notch. Like, it doesn't happen that way. If anything, every time we repent, we're elevated again and again and again to a new higher status. So this is something we have to be really reminded of. The great saints tell us that we should not feel guilty uh, when we repent. We should feel guilty when we sin. Because repentance restores us to glory. Um, restores the glory of, of this airship. Okay. How should you respond to God's forgiveness? As I live in the grace of God's constant forgiveness, so I should live in constant thanks and praise to Him. And as I have been loved and forgiven, so I should love and forgive without limit those who sin against me. Boy, uh, the many renderings of the Lord's Prayer, uh, especially in the Gospel of Luke, um, say something like this. Um, Forgive us our sins, not as we forgive, which is kind of like a, you know, collinear action, right? We, you know, we're forgiving, uh, God forgive us as we're doing this, you know. This is kind of these two actions side by side. The Gospel of Luke puts it in a different way. Forgive us our sins because we forgive those who sin against us. It's an appeal based on our, on our forgiveness, Right? Um, and that seems very strange. Like, well, yeah, we don't deserve forgiveness. Well, neither do the people in our lives, right? They don't deserve it either. That's the thing about forgiveness. Um, I want to say a bit more about that, uh, but, but it's, it's simply this, that we should live in this grace of constant forgiveness. And we should give constant thanks and praise for this forgiveness. Um, the, the great parable of the, of the debtor who, owns, who owes this unbelievable debt um, I'm trying to remember what it is. It's something like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge amount, right? It's, what is it like? I forget what the, what the number is, but I always translate it in my mind as a bajillion dollars, right? Because that's the only thing that can really get close to what this actually is. Um, if you're ever reading Scripture and you read about a talent of silver or a talent of gold, don't think like a coin, that's not what a talent is. That's, that's called a shekel, okay? A talent is a gigantic urn built out of gold or silver that stands about yay high, and in today's dollars, it's worth about $1.2 million if it's gold. Yeah, so when you read the parable of the talents, that's what's given into the hand of the servants. It's, it's, a, it's a gigantic piece of wealth-holding material, Okay. Um, and this guy is forgiven this gigantic debt. It's huge. Jesus' hearers would have laughed out loud. Like, <laughs> you're kidding me. He was forgiven a debt that big? Then what does the servant go out and do? He's wrestling up, yeah, the master's other debtors for things like 50 denarii. And he's just shaking them by the neck. Saying, pay what you owe. Um, we, we, we have been granted this unbelievable grace of forgiveness. It's beyond comprehension. Um, and so we have to be a people of forgiveness ourselves. Now, the question is, how far does that go? And I want to talk a little bit about that 
um, and we can talk about that as we go on. But I, I do want to say something that I've been, I've been pondering lately, which is that um, in, in the biblical tradition, and this, this applies both to uh, Jewish understandings but also to Christian understandings, sin does not attach uh, to us personally. Um, sin is about deeds. Um, sin, is, sin, sin does not destroy our essential nature as God's children, as, as, uh, as creatures made in the image of God. Now, is our human nature bent? Is it broken? Yeah, it is. But is that to say that its essential nature is destroyed? Not at all. Um, and this is a huge concept because what it allows us to do is it allows us to look at a sinner in our life and say, I forgive you what you've done. And it does not allow us to say, I am so ashamed of you. Do you see the difference? Because this, this guilt attaches to the deed, not to the person. Um, and this opens up this incredible opportunity that we have to be a people of forgiveness. Because, it, listen, if I say to my children, okay, you, you are a bad child. You're not supposed to say that kind of thing, by the way. Um, you know, verbal abuse is, is the very definition of tying someone's worth to their person. Right? What should we instead say to a child? You did something that was really awful, but I forgive you. Right? It's a huge thing. And we, and we lavish affection on our children. Um, by the way, this is like parenting 101, but, but it's so important. And we live in a society that is starting to turn to attaching guilt to a person and not to deeds. And it scares the bejesus out of me. Because you know what happens when we do that? This is a rejection of our Western tradition, okay? It's a rejection of the Christian tradition. You know what happens? Yeah, we just kill you. What's to stop us? We just say, You're, this, is a, this is a bad actor, we'll just kill you. Um, because we can't see people as capable of redemption or as indeed deserving of redemption. We don't see every human being in the light of God's creation. Okay? But the Christian tradition tells us something quite opposite, which is what? Don't attach guilt to persons, we attach it to deeds. Um, when we attach guilt to persons, we become a brutal society and culture with no patience. Um, and this is, this is a huge, I mean, listen, it's a huge step forward for our society that we started to latch onto these Christian ideas um, because it meant that we could be a people who think about how people could be restored. Um, and when we become a people who say restoration is not possible, then your life is just worth nothing. It'll just kill you. Um, now, is that to say people should face no consequences for their sins? Not at all, okay? Not at all. Um, sin always has consequences, always, right? And in the Christian tradition, they're either natural or they are in some sense uh, temporal or they are withheld for a time, right? Um, and this is important because uh, today um, we're not really good at this, right? Like, Modern parenting culture is something like, if you don't want your child to fall and get hurt, don't let them be in a situation where they can fall and get hurt. So the kid, what happens to the kid? 
they never have an opportunity to learn from natural consequences. And, and what happens is it, 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 it miswires their fear perceptors so that they're deathly afraid of things they shouldn't be afraid of, and they're defiant against things they absolutely should be afraid of. It messes that part of us up. Um, so, you know, natural consequences are the best teacher a parent can have, right? Um, I, I, at a certain point, said, I, I'm tired of telling you kids not to climb on the back of the couch. I'm just not going to do it anymore. And what happens, invariably? They do it. They fall. They get hurt. They cry. And I, and I just sort of hold them and say, so what did you learn through this? To not back on the back of the couch? Exactly. Right? But if I just am constantly plucking them off the back of the couch, then they start to think, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. Dad's going to come grab me. Right? So this is to say that, uh, and what does all this have to do with sin? Well, it has to do with the fact that we face natural consequences for sin. This surprises some people today. Like, oh my goodness, you know, like, I've, I've exercised all of my liberties and all of my freedoms as a free human being, and like, it's brought me nothing but misery. Why? Um, this is a huge problem in the sexual revolution. People are like, I've exercised all of this sexual freedom, and I'm miserable. And I'm sick. Why am I sick and miserable? It's like, because sin has natural consequences. And we should just say this, right? Um, anyway, uh, that's, that's important. Okay. But even in the midst of natural consequences, we do believe in grace. So let's ask this question. What is grace? Grace is the gift of the triune God's love, mercy, and help, which He freely gives to us, who, because of our sin, deserve only condemnation. I love this answer. I partly love it because I wrote it myself. Um, No, I I did, but it's not that. (laughs) Um, Listen, if there is a misunderstood word in the church today, it is the G word, grace. What does grace mean in the Christian understanding? And it is so misunderstood because uh, uh, people will err on one side and not the other. And they actually don't uphold the Christian tradition when it comes to what grace is, or even the New Testament tradition as to what grace is. Let me explain what I mean. Some people will read this and they'll say, grace is the gift of the triune God's love, which he freely gives to us, who because of our sins deserve only condemnation. Grace is just love. It's undeserved love. Is that true? Yes. Is it just undeserved love? No. Uh, and, and I'll explain what I mean. Uh, it was very common in the Reformation for many of the Reformers, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, uh, but, but uh, to kind of speak of grace more in the sense, because they're correcting to one side, right? If the fault prior to the Reformation was uh, uh, that grace is all about giving you all the power you need to be changed and to be sanctified, then in the Reformation, the fault is on the other side. Grace is about just simply overlooking your sin. Um, and you get these kind of wonderful, fanciful analogies like, you know, uh, Martin Luther is said to have said that we're, we're basically like snow-covered turds, right? Did he say that? No, no, he didn't say that. But, but I will say it is a fair read of his theology at certain points, okay? Like the grace of justification is essentially like, you're a piece of garbage, I'm just going to paint over you, and you'll look different, and you'll look different to me, and I'm fooling. This is like God fooling even himself, right? Um, which I think is a little difficult. But anyway, uh, 
this is the understanding of grace that most American Protestants have, and they sort of think like, oh yeah, this is just grace. Grace is like this undeserved merit, favor, blah, 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 okay? Is that, is that true? Yes, but it's not the whole picture, right? So it's not just love and mercy, but it's also help. And there's this huge portion of the Christian tradition, which is just as biblical and just as true, that focuses on the help that God gives to sinners. Okay, so I want to make this really clear, that grace is not only this unmerited forgiveness and favor and love and mercy, but it's also this incredible gift of help. And I would even say further that God's gift of love, this free gift of love, does not mean overlooking the worst parts of you. Because love actually means, at the end of the day, giving people what they need in order to live the life that is intended in them. Um, God's love does not consist in leaving us in the gutter of sin. Right? Um, God offers the grace of sanctification, uh, and this is a huge deal. Um, The scholastics refer to this in a really simple phrase, which is that grace perfects our nature brings it to completion, brings it to its end. What's the end of human nature? I'm speaking in terms of, I'm not saying like, when will human nature disappear? <laughs> Here's the giveaway. It's not going to. You and I are eternal beings. It means, it means what will it look like when, our, when, when we're finished, when we're brought to our end, right? Um, what is the end that draws us in this life? This is something that is, you know, Hans Borsman was here doing catechesis last year, and he, he spoke eloquently of this. But we as Christians have forgotten that we are a people with a, with a telos, with an end. And that end is not just something we look forward to. It's actually literally something that draws us through to the end. Um, what is it? Who is it? Yeah, it's God, right? The chief end of man, as the great Reformation catechisms put it. Kara? Oh, you, did, you missed your Heidelberg, you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yes, to love God and, 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 and enjoy Him forever. Um, uh, life lived in the glory of God is the end of man. This is, this is straight out of Irenaeus, that great second century church father. That, uh, that when you and I are fully alive, this is the glory of God. And how can we be fully alive without grace? It's impossible. Okay? So grace is about perfecting us. Grace is about taking that which is in us that is broken, bent, destroyed, marred, uh, uh, messed over, and restoring us. Okay? Um, it's big. Right? Is sanctification easy? No, it's like really, really, really hard, and it's, it can be miserable at times. Um, but I want to um, uh, say this about grace uh, as we move on, that, that it is so important. Um, do, does God give His grace only to Christians? No. God graciously provides for all people. He makes His sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. However, He shows His saving grace by bringing to faith in Christ those who are far from him. Grace is, uh, there's a thing called common grace. It's the grace that all of us have. 
Um, in a sense, it's the grace that keeps us from floating off this planet and out into outer space, right? It's the grace of gravity. It's the grace of uh, rain showers hitting the just and the unjust. It's the grace of, uh, of uh, even the worst of sinners still being alive. Um, we have to remember that this world is shot through with grace. Um, grace is, uh, is, 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 uh, is, is in the very order of creation, right? Because here's the thing. You may notice something about creation. What is it? It's busted. Why is it busted? Sin, okay? So like global warming, the fact that some sheep are born with birth defects, that some human beings are born with deep birth defects, that some, human, that some children don't make it to full term in the womb, that uh, we have all of these problems in our society and culture, like, and we have problems in creation itself. All of it has to do with sin. Um, and yet, what happens? Yeah, the sun rises every day. It keeps moving. It keeps going forward. Like, you know, we make a trip around the sun every year, and, you know, it, it, it works. It happens. Why does it happen? I love what Julian of Norwich says about this. Because God loves it, and he wills it to continue. <laughs> um, this, is, this is very important. So we, we must know that everyone experiences grace. This is a point where I want to break down grace a little bit. There's common grace. Uh, there's also what, uh, what the tradition is called prevenient grace, and this is the grace that leads us to conversion. Um, it's the grace of which uh, Augustine speaks about in the Confessions when he's talking about God showing him his grace before he knew him, before he, before he knew God. Um, we all have had some measure of prevenient grace working in us, uh, and, uh, and it's a very important thing. Uh, we also receive actual grace, which is like, you ever hear those wonderful stories? I don't think they're, I don't think they're made up, but if like a car winds up on top of some kid, crushing him, and all of a sudden some, you know, 100-pound woman comes up to the car and just bah, lifts the car and the kid escapes. And we said, there's no way she could have ever done that. But there it is. What happened? I say actual grace, right? Actual grace is the kind of thing that gives us superhuman abilities. Now, sometimes that's doing things like lifting cars. Sometimes that's things like figuring out a way forward in family life. And sometimes that's just like all of these things that we ask God for help with, right? Actual grace. In addition, we have um, sacramental grace. Um, as sacramental Christians, we pursue the grace of the sacraments for our lives, um, knowing that, um, that we can't really live by our own power. Um, and so I would hope that one of the reasons you came here today is to have your grace tank refilled uh, and, uh, and uh, to, to receive that, uh, the, good, the good grace of fellowship with Christ in the sacraments. Okay, question 139. For what purpose does God give you grace? God gives me grace in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, the healing of sin's effects, growth and holiness, perseveration through death and judgment, and my ultimate transformation into the image of Christ. I love this. So it sort of progresses, right? Um, grace is not merely the, the grace of forgiveness of sins, but it is that. It is the grace of forgiveness of sins. Do we need forgiveness? Yes, we do. We all need forgiveness. We all need to be forgiven. Um, but furthermore, to heal uh, sin's effects. Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever met anyone like this who just 
you can smell almost the sanctity in their lives. Just really, a really holy person, right? Um, and you think, man, you must have been born sweet. And then you get to know them. And then they start to share their story. And then they start to tell you all these things. Like, <laughs> this has happened to me several times. You're talking to this person, and, and they start to tell you about their life. And you think, what? How did you come out of that? <laughs> Um, my wife is one of these people, right? Just like, if you were to hear her story, you would sit there like, what? How is that possible? That doesn't just happen. And you, all you can say is like, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. Um, sin's effects should have brought that woman down on several occasions, right? Not just hers, but others, right? And what? God worked. God did his work. I can look at my own life and say, sin should have brought me down on several occasions, crashing. My life should have crashed. And yet God's grace was working, was working to draw me uh, to himself. Growth in holiness. Oh, my goodness. If, if there's something that the church has lost through this theology of, of grace merely as forgiveness, merely as overlooking of sin, it's this understanding of holiness that's been almost entirely lost in, in, in the American church. Um, because we're far more patient with uh, our own faults, because we simply presume that God will just be very merciful, and that'll be it. Um, if you read the New Testament, you shouldn't get that impression. <laughs> should you get the impression that God is a forgiving God? Absolutely. Should you give you… Should you Get the impression that God is a graceful God? Absolutely. Should you get the impression that God is easy on sin? Not at all. Not at all. Um, and so we have to have this as a corrective, that holiness is so utterly important. Go ahead. This is something that shows up in the Psalms, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. But there's also this like prayer for judgment even of yourself, right? Uh, search me out, O Lord, and know me, right? Um, it is, it is uh, and you're right, the Psalms are a great example of this. They, they draw you to think about this, the holiness of God and, and, uh, and our relationship. You know, and of course, the Old Testament law says, you shall be holy. Why? Because the Lord your God is holy. Um, now, does this mean, what does this mean? Does it mean cleaned up, scrubbed in the bathtub of grace? Yes, but it means a lot more than that. It means that because of this, because of this washing, um, you and I have been set aside, marked out as different, um, and holiness is, is tied to that exp expressly. Um, so Christians must pursue holiness. Now, the, the difference is that um, we, the Christian always knows that this holiness is, is, uh, is in many ways foreign to us. And this is one of those things where, you know, I, I really hate it when people mischaracterize Luther because despite all of Luther's issues, if you read his wonderful, um, uh, his wonderful tract, Two Kinds of Righteousness, which is, I think, one of the greatest theological writings that's ever been written, he speaks about how there's a righteousness that's foreign to us, and there's a righteousness that actually becomes ours. 
the kind of righteousness that comes about that's given to us as holiness. Um, and, and, it, and it's a righteousness that we fully cooperate with. Um, so you can pursue this. You can receive this. Um, but does it ever, is it ever generated from within our nature? It can't be, right? Um, here's, here's the deal, though, too, which is important. Um, can a bad tree bear good fruit? No. Only a good tree can bear good fruit. And so we, we learn from this that uh, the, 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 the fruit of holiness has to be borne out um, by God's help. Okay. Is God's grace only for your religious or spiritual life? No. God cares about my whole life, and His grace in Christ is at work in every aspect of it. Oh, here's another disaster to just point out. There has been an utter disaster in our society because we have far too quickly parsed out and have separated the secular life from the religious life. We've parsed out and separated uh, the spiritual from the natural, the spiritual from the quote-unquote real. Um, total disaster. Um, this is borne out in how, uh, how uh, in, in society um, faith is spoken of as one thing and actual real life as another. Um, Think about policy and some of the things we're entering into an election cycle. We're already in the midst of it. I've been trying to ignore it, but it's coming. We're going to talk about it. Uh, but there, there are a good number of people who say, you know, faith should be something which Americans keep to themselves, that they keep inside the four walls of their church, and that they don't do anything else with. This is the definition of a secular society when that's the case, right? Um, the problem with that is that Christians can't be, we, we just can't be satisfied with that, because this, this call to holiness and this call to God's grace does not simply apply when we're in here on Sunday mornings or when we're praying on our couch at home, but to all of life. And the thing that's almost incomprehensible in secular society is that Christians would seek to live out their faith in interactions with, with society, that we would have places where we're not willing to go, uh, moral decisions that we're not willing to enter into. Uh, uh, quandaries that we're not willing to, to get into, right? Um, so uh, God cares about our whole life, all of it. Um, and this is why, you know, we, we really need to be careful about drawing um, vast distinctions between uh, the sacred and the secular. Um, in many ways, this is simply the modern temptation, right? It's to say uh, there's the visible and invisible, and you've got to keep those separate because, you know, they should never touch each other because that would be icky, and then we'd have all these kinds of problems. And it's like... We're in those problems precisely because we've drawn that distinction too, too deeply, okay? Um, and and uh, so I'm, uh, this is something to work through, but I think we've got to be much more, uh, much more desirous uh, to live uh, an integrated life, which means a whole life. Um, so I'll put that one out there. Um, we must see how Christ is at work in every aspect of our lives. Can you earn God's grace? No. God gives His grace freely and enables me to receive it. Everything I do should be in response to God's love and grace made known in Christ. For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we love because He first loved us. I'm going to get a little bit into the minutia of this, but at the center of Anglicanism's response to, the Reformation, to, to what's going on in, in the medieval Catholic Church, 
is an insistence that there is nothing you and I can do to earn grace. Total insistence on this. Because here's the problem. The problem is that um, so-called indulgences are kind of saying uh, something like this. Uh, St. Cecilia has enough grace, not only for her, but for a bunch of other people. So we're going to, you know, the church has the option to, like, give that to Blake. Congratulations. You know, you've got, but you've got to do something to get it, okay? So we'll make that clear. You've got to go do something. And, and, and uh, the Reformation response is, is quite clear. It's to say, no, 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 no. There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace because it belongs to God. And it's, it's still um, a great scandal that this teaching is still held on to in the Roman church. And I'll just say that. Like, this is, this is the reason that I'm still an Anglican, is at the core of it, it's about this issue. Can you earn God's grace? Um, can, can holiness even become yours? Um, and I'm convinced that um, we can become holy, but this is God's work in us. It's not something we do. Um, it's not something we earn. Uh, having said that, I want to actually say that this is the historic teaching of the Catholic Church, that you cannot earn God's grace, you cannot do anything to get it, uh, you can't undertake action of your own nature uh, to do this because it's all filthy. <laughs> um, it can only happen because of God's grace. So at the center of, of our faith is this faith in God's grace uh, to redeem us, to save us, to draw us to His glory. Um, it doesn't happen through these other means. Um, it happens because God is gracious and gives it to us. Um, and, and this is why I also want to say, one of, the, one of the things where Anglicanism kind of holds this, it's often called the via media, is this understanding of, yes, that, and we still understand that we receive grace through the life of the sacraments. We still receive grace through baptism. We still receive grace uh, through, through the Eucharist. Um, and I want to put that there for you to, to, so you can see it. Um, which is that most of American Protestantism has this uh, illusory understanding that, um, that grace is just this thing out there and that I might get it, I might not. I kind of have to pray and do, and do other things, but, but there's no way to say every time I'm doing this, I receive grace. Yet, as Anglicans, what do we say? This is why I started off with the sacraments this morning. A sacrament is a sure and certain means of an inward and spiritual grace. Okay? So, listen, you don't come up to the altar and say something like this, maybe I'm getting grace today. Wouldn't it be great if I got grace today? <laughs> Not good enough. You say, you're getting grace today. This is why we as Anglicans teach that um, my attitude on a Sunday morning does not affect the validity of the sacraments. <laughs> I mean, the reality of it is that, that, uh, that uh, I can kick the dog on the way out of the house, and you don't have to sit there and wonder, did Father Nelson kick the dog on the way out of the house? Is he in a state of grace? Is he capable of doing this thing? Don't have to worry about that, because I'm a priest and I do it, and that's all that matters, right? Why? Why is that necessary? So that you don't have to doubt whether or not you're receiving grace. Do you see the gift that's here? Do you see how wonderful that is? That every time you approach the altar of God, you can say, I'm receiving grace. 
There's a thing that you ought to undertake, though, if I could just suggest it for a moment. When you approach the altar, when you approach the rail, ask God. Um, Teresa of Avila points, points us in this direction by saying that we need to be aiming God's grace. Almost like a gardener, she says, it's like a gardener watering a garden. You water the parts that what? Are dry and need water. I mean, if you just stood there watering the wettest part of the garden, what good is that? So think on yourself. You know, as you pray through the confession, think, this is where I'm falling short. This is where sin has been most disastrous in my life. And as you approach the altar, as you approach the sacrament, say, Lord, I invite you to water my garden this way today through your grace um, and, and, and delight in receiving that grace. Um, if you're having a particular struggle against sin and it's just devastating and it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere and you're really working and it, and it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere, I can only commend to you uh, sacramental confession. Um, you can simply now, this is great, I've got office hours now, so just drop by Tuesday and Thursday mornings. If that's not possible for you, set it up. I mean, listen, I say this over and over again. You can get me out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning to your confession. Yeah, you can. <laughs> Why? Because, because I, on the day that I was ordained a priest, Bishop Iker uh, blessed my hands and said, whose sins you forgiven, they're forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they're retained. Um, I was uh, uh, converted into a, 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 uh, an instrument of grace. And if I sleep through your phone call at two in the morning because you need to be assured of God's forgiveness, I'm not doing that, right? And listen, my wife will not complain. That's the one thing she won't complain about. Well, she'll, she won't complain about a lot of stuff, but she absolutely won't complain about, about me getting up to your confession me leaving something to go hear a confession. If it's absolutely necessary at that point, no, you can wait a little bit, but don't wait too long. Um, if it's necessary and, and, and has to happen then, just, just let me know and I'll be there. Um, so I think that's it. <laughs> As we enter Lent, I want to encourage you in this. If you have sins, old sins that you've been struggling with for your life and you don't see a way out and the light at the end of the tunnel seems turned off, um, listen, you need help. You can't do this by yourself. That's what grace is. And if you've been battling sin by your own power forever and ever and getting nowhere, there's a reason for that. You're battling sin by your own power. So as we approach Lent, I want you to consider that. And, and I'd also say to you, <laughs> very often um, in a confessional situation, I'm able to encourage you to get other kinds of help. Um, especially when you're dealing with things like addictions, when you're dealing with things like medical issues, mental health issues, I'm able to say to you, listen, I think you've got bigger problems than just sin. Um, and I think you need to get some help. And, and believe me, like, if you're struggling with mental health, you're not talking to somebody who's merely sympathetic. I'm empathetic because I deal with it myself, okay? And for years, I thought that my deepest problems were moral problems, sin problems, and in fact, it was chemical imbalance problems, okay? And so nothing but compassion for me because I understand it. Um, and, and people are suffering under this weight today. And uh, so I want you to hear that, that um, we often struggle under these weights and we think it's all a moral issue. Well, it, partly, but not entirely. And so, um, so get the help you need.
uh, we'll begin next week as well. Thank you.